July 2, 1881, 39-year-old Charles Gateau stared at the hulking body that laid before him, motionless. Gateau's eyes were wide. He was surprised that he'd really done it. After weeks of stalking and planning, he finally shot the President of the United States, James Garfield. Smoke billowed from the barrel of the 44 caliber British Bulldog in his hand. He turned and saw Secretary of State James Blaine screaming. But for a few seconds, all Charles could hear was his own heavy breathing. And then... Chaos. A sudden realization came to him. He needed to run. He pushed his way through the crowd of people running in every direction. He could see the door in front of him. Just a few more steps and he'd be free. Then he heard someone shout, get him. All of a sudden, a sharp pain ran through his neck and wrist. He was unable to keep running. A ticket agent had grabbed a hold of him. He called out, here he is, officer. This is the man who shot the president. Charles watched as police officer Patrick Kearney came running up and took him into custody. He tried to wiggle his way free, but Kearney was too strong. Charles stopped trying. He knew it was pointless. He turned to the officer and said, I want to go to jail. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our second episode on the assassination of President James Garfield by Charles Guiteau in the summer of 1881. You can find episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Assassinations for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Assassinations in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Last week, we discussed the lives of Charles Guiteau and James Garfield. We also tracked the circumstances that led the delusional Charles to fatally shoot the president. This week, we'll explore the medical malpractice performed by Garfield's doctors after he was shot. We'll also dive into the trial of Charles Guiteau. Finally, we'll take a look at the impact Garfield's death had and explore how the world would have looked had he survived to carry out his full presidency. As more police came to Officer Kearney's side to help drag 39-year-old Charles Guiteau away, a mob formed at the Baltimore and Potomac Railroad Station. The crowd chanted, lynch him! Lynch him. Charles had a self-satisfied look on his face. In his mind, he'd carried out the mission God had laid out for him. And as the officers dragged him out of the train station and into a police carriage, Charles shouted, I am a stalwart, 
and Chester Arthur is now president. Except President James Garfield was still alive. Lying on the dirt-covered and unhygienic floor of the train station, he fought to stay conscious. His teenage sons, Harry and Jim, held back the crowd forming around them. Garfield whispered for water. When he received a glass, he struggled to sip it, vomiting as he drank. The first bullet had sliced cleanly through James's right arm. However, the second bullet had entered his back and lodged itself there. Dr. Smith Townsend arrived within minutes of the shooting. Garfield was barely conscious but able to speak. Townsend quickly made a concoction of brandy and smelling salts that jolted his patient awake. What happened next would prove costly. Townsend took his unsterilized fingers, which had touched the disgusting train station floor, and inserted them directly into the wound in Garfield's back. He wasn't able to locate the bullet, so the only purpose it served was to introduce a veritable cesspool into the injury. To examine him more thoroughly, Townsend decided they needed to get Garfield off the floor and away from the crowds. They hoisted the president onto a makeshift mattress and brought him to a private room. During that time, Townsend was joined by Dr. Charles Purvis, the chief surgeon at the Freedmen's Hospital. The 39-year-old would go down in history as the first black doctor to examine a U.S. president. Immediately upon arrival, he ordered that hot water bottles and blankets be wrapped around Garfield's torso and legs to stimulate his fading pulse and counteract his clammy skin. As the two doctors looked over Garfield, the Secretary of War, Robert Todd Lincoln, had nightmarish flashbacks to when his father, Abraham Lincoln, was shot. He ordered for someone to find Dr. D. Willard Bliss. Bliss was considered the premier expert in ballistics wounds after his experience as a surgeon during the Civil War. Bliss arrived 15 minutes later and assumed control of Garfield's care. Like Townsend, he completely ignored sanitizing his hands before he started digging through Garfield's wound. Antisepsis was a new concept in medicine that most American doctors were dubious about. Even worse than Townsend, Bliss also didn't sanitize the probes he used to search for the bullet. Nor did he give Garfield any kind of pain-relieving tonic. His suffering was unbearable, while Bliss poked and prodded, so much so that Purvis demanded that Bliss stop, an audacious move for a black doctor to make against a white doctor. But Bliss ignored Purvis's protests. Meanwhile, Secretary of State James Blaine was met by other cabinet members. Still in shock, Blaine realized that he recognized the shooter. When pressed about where he'd seen him before, he recalled that Charles had pestered the State Department for a consulship job in Paris. It was impossible for it to be the same man, Blaine thought. As the chaos at the train station raged on, shooter Charles Gateau was on his way to the police station. He told Officer Kearney that he had a letter for famed Union General William Tecumseh Sherman that needed to be delivered. Kearney said he would handle it. At police headquarters, 
Charles' pockets were emptied. In all the excitement at the train station, no one had bothered to take away his pistol. It wasn't until now that they finally took the weapon into their possession. Word traveled fast about the assassination attempt. Mobs formed, demanding Charles be lynched. The police decided to transport Charles to a more secure location, District Jail. On the carriage ride over, Charles believed that he was only in police custody for his own safety. In no time at all, General Sherman would free him from jail, and the newly instated President Chester Arthur would reward him with the Paris consulship for putting him in power. For now, he'd just sit and wait in his jail cell. A sense of relief washed over him for successfully carrying out his divine mission. He was about to be famous for saving the country. Meanwhile, back at Baltimore and Potomac, Garfield asked to go back to the White House. While it wasn't the most glamorous of places, at that time it was infested with rodents, broken floorboards, and leaky pipes, it was still cleaner than the train station, and it was away from the crowds. Eight men carried Garfield down the steps and into a horse-drawn ambulance. The mob that surrounded the train station immediately quieted upon seeing the president, relieved that he was still alive. They finally arrived at the White House around 11 a.m., about an hour and a half after the shooting. Garfield was situated in a private room. A dozen doctors attended him, overseen by Willard Bliss. He repeatedly injected Garfield with morphine to ease the pain. The medicine caused Garfield to become nauseous throughout the day. Despite the intense pain and repeated episodes of vomiting, his spirits were actually rather high. He joked with the doctors and asked about his wife, Lucretia, who was on her way home from New Jersey. When she finally arrived that night at 7 p.m., the two spoke privately for less than 20 minutes. The conversation gave Lucretia a sense of hope. The doctors, however, believed that Garfield wouldn't survive the night. After a more thorough examination at the White House, the doctors concluded that his liver was severely damaged. Throughout the night, Bliss released updates to the public on the president's condition. The bulletins contradicted the truth, claiming he was feeling better. As Bliss was controlling public perception, he was also consolidating his authority. After gaining the trust of both Garfield and Lucretia, Bliss ordered the dismissal of all the other doctors. Outraged over the coup, many of these doctors told the press that Bliss was actually doing more harm than good. He disputed the accusations, continuing to spin his own narrative. Eventually, Bliss called in two highly respected surgeons to examine Garfield, mostly as a way to diffuse the blame should Garfield's condition worsen. Both surgeons individually inspected the president. The only conclusion they could come to was that the liver didn't look damaged, as was initially believed, but the president was clearly in grave condition. Throughout the day, Garfield's temperature spiked to triple digits. In response, Navy engineers created the first White House air conditioning unit by having fans blow over blocks of ice. Though it helped cool the room down, it was terribly loud and made the room humid, 
causing Garfield to feel even more discomfort. The next few weeks were a roller coaster for Garfield. His condition seemed to get better, then suddenly worse, and then back again. Pus began to expel from his wound, which doctors incorrectly took as a good sign. After the pus came severe rigors and an even higher fever, signs of blood poisoning. Garfield was drenched in sweat and fatigued. At one point, he scratched on a chalkboard, Strangulatus Pro Republica, or Tortured for the Republic. On July 23, 1881, three weeks after the shooting, the truth about Garfield's condition finally broke. One of the other doctors told reporters that the president's health had worsened so much through Bliss's neglect that he was almost certainly dying. Even Bliss, by that time, recognized the president's worsening condition. He believed that he had done all he medically could and asked for help from other fields. One person to answer the call was inventor and scientist Alexander Graham Bell. On July 26, 1881, Bell visited the ailing, pale president. He brought a crude metal detector that would hopefully locate the bullet using electromagnetic waves. The device, unfortunately, didn't work. But Bell was determined. After a few days of tinkering with the device, he returned to the White House on August 1st and tried again. They removed all metal objects from around Garfield's bed to avoid any interference. They placed the device on Garfield's chest, where Bliss suspected the bullet was. Bell listened and heard a faint, pulsating noise. Bliss took the results as confirmation. He released a bulletin saying that the bullet was lodged in Garfield's abdomen wall above the groin. But Bell had doubts. The next day, he returned to the White House and asked if every metal object was clear from the bed. He discovered that under Garfield's hay mattress was another one made entirely of crisscrossed metal wires. It made sense that the White House would have a newly invented box spring. But to Bell, it was a shocking revelation that may have tainted the test. Perhaps the bullet wasn't in his abdomen at all, and they were looking in the wrong section of his body. Unfortunately, Bell was called back to Boston before he could run another test. And in his absence, Garfield was once more left in Bliss's incompetent care. Coming up, Garfield's death and the trial of Charles Gateau. Now, back to the story. For several weeks after he was shot on July 2, 1881, President James Garfield had remained alive in the questionable care of his doctors. Their rejection of germ theory and squabbles in the public eye left Garfield in a drawn-out period of suffering with no recovery in sight. For the next six weeks, through August and the beginning of September, Garfield's health deteriorated thanks to the help of Dr. D. Willard Bliss and his associates. He experienced paralysis of the face, causing his eye and cheek to swell. Pus pockets formed all over his body. 
Bliss wrongly operated on them, only spreading the blood poisoning. Toward the end of August, Garfield developed parotitis in his right parotid gland. These glands are located on both sides of the mouth in front of the ear and produce saliva. Garfield's infection caused blockages in the ducts, forming a large boil beneath his right ear. When it seemed like things couldn't get any worse, Garfield was no longer able to eat. He was essentially starving to death. On the day he was shot, July 2nd, he'd weighed 225 pounds. By the middle of August, he was down to 130. Perhaps seeing the end, Garfield decided he needed to get out of Washington. They decided to go to Elberon, New Jersey. As a White House staffer explained, the hope was that the air and the sight of the sea might do for him what the doctors could not. On September 6, 1881, Garfield traveled to Elberon along with his team of doctors, his wife Lucretia, and daughter Molly. But his health only continued to deteriorate. By the middle of September, the president knew he wasn't going to recover. On September 17th, he complained of chest pains for the first time during this entire ordeal. He also became delirious. At 10 p.m. on September 19, 1881, Garfield shouted to his friend David Swaim that he felt a terrible pain. He instructed Swaim to feel his chest and stop the aching. Then suddenly, Garfield slipped into a coma his breathing shallow. Within minutes, his wife Lucretia and Dr. Bliss entered the room. Bliss placed his head on Garfield's chest and listened as his breathing slowly faded. And then at 10.35 p.m., Bliss sat up. He turned to the others and simply said, it's over. 80 days after he was shot by Charles Guiteau, 49-year-old James Garfield the President of the United States, was dead. Vice President Chester A. Arthur was in New York when he received the news. For months, he and Garfield had been at political odds, a feud that had its roots in the bitter divide between the Republican stalwarts and half-breeds. Despite their contentious relationship, Arthur was deeply saddened by the news. At 2.15 a.m. on September 20th, Arthur stood before a New York Supreme Court justice and was sworn in as the 21st President of the United States. That morning, he took a train to Elberon to escort Garfield's body back to Washington. Before he left, he locked himself in his room and wept. As Arthur traveled to New Jersey, he knew that he was entering dangerous territory. Not only was he about to see the grieving wife of his deceased rival, but he also knew of the accusations that he was responsible. After all, Gateau had shouted, I am a stalwart and Arthur is now president. Rumors floated that Arthur and his friend, the embittered former Senator Roscoe Conkling, were somehow behind the assassination. Conspiracies flooded the Capitol, linking Arthur to Charles Guiteau. But even on his deathbed, Garfield had never believed that Arthur was involved. As Arthur was making his way to Elberon, 
the autopsy of Garfield's body was underway. The doctors discovered that the bullet missed the spine by about four inches, fractured the 11th and 12th ribs, managed to miss the spinal cord, and was lodged in the pancreas. It was on the complete opposite side of the body from where they had been looking. The doctors were also shocked when they realized Garfield's body was riddled with infection. They found huge abscesses in his right ear, back, shoulders, and left kidney. His lungs were ravaged with pneumonia. Blood from his splenic artery had coagulated in his abdominal cavity, leaving a fist-sized clot. However, the doctors ultimately concluded that the cause of death was a broken backbone. Shockingly, not once during their autopsy report did they mention germs, bacteria, or blood poisoning. When Garfield's body reached Washington, D.C., it was displayed for public viewing in the Capitol Rotunda for two days. Hundreds of thousands of people came to pay their respects. One reporter noted their surprise at the diversity. Men and women of all colors and classes waited hours to say goodbye to James Garfield. But by September 22nd, the bacteria that was still in his body accelerated the decomposition. The casket was closed and never opened again for anyone to see. The following day, Garfield's body was sent to Cleveland, Ohio for burial. Throughout Garfield's slow demise, Charles Guiteau remained in his jail cell, waiting for Chester Arthur to come and absolve him. But the admiration he expected never came. In fact, one soldier, Sergeant William Mason, was so tired of seeing Charles alive that he shot at him through the jail cell window. Mason missed and was sentenced to eight years for the assassination attempt. He never regretted the act. When Garfield finally died, 80 days after the shooting, no one ever told Charles. It was in passing from his guards that he discovered that Garfield had succumbed. Throughout the country, newspapers ran letters from citizens describing creative ways that Charles should pay for his crime. According to historian Candace Millard, one letter claimed that Charles should be thrown to a pack of hungry dogs. In her state of mourning, Lucretia Garfield told her children to try and feel some kind of sympathy for Charles, only because it was the Christian thing to do. By now, they had heard of Charles's visions of grandeur and that he may be mentally ill. But Molly Garfield felt no sympathy for the man who killed her father. She thought Charles should be tortured to death. Instead, he went on trial. On October 14, 1881, Charles J. Gateau stood before Judge Walter Cox and pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. He said, quote, Insanity, in that it was God's act and not mine. The divine pressure on me to remove the president was enormous that it destroyed my free agency, and therefore I am not legally responsible. Word spread about his questionable mental state, and fear grew among the public that Charles may potentially get away with murdering the president. Charles's trial began on November 14, 1881. 
Throughout the proceedings, the courthouse was packed with onlookers and gawkers. Charles was represented by his brother-in-law, George Scoville, along with another attorney. Charles argued that he could represent himself, but Scoville refused to allow it. In addition to pleading insanity, Charles and his defense blamed Garfield's death on his doctors. Early in the trial, as a witness testified about the events of July 2nd, Charles interrupted and shouted, I deny the killing, if your honor please. We admit the shooting. His disturbances continued throughout the trial. Every day, Charles either refuted witnesses mid-testimony, spoke directly to the judge without permission, or loudly disagreed with his own attorneys during cross-examination. At one point, Scoville demanded the judge make Charles keep quiet, but it accomplished very little, and he continued to talk over whoever was testifying. Finally, on November 28th, Charles took the stand himself. For a week, he recounted his childhood, his time at the Oneida Community Commune, and his year as a traveling evangelist. Finally, he revealed his motive for shooting Garfield. After surviving a boat crash, he knew that God had delivered him for a mission. His divine purpose was to save the country by shooting the president. As the days went on, the public grew restless. The slow-moving trial became too much for one drunken farmer. One afternoon, as Charles sat in his carriage waiting to leave the courthouse, the farmer brandished a pistol and shot through the carriage window bars. The bullet missed Charles but left a hole in his coat, and he remained in constant fear. Finally, after two long months, the trial concluded. The closing arguments were more or less a rehash of Charles's mental state. He was allowed to speak one more time to the jury. Once again, Charles claimed the shooting was an act of God. And then he sang John Brown's Body, a popular folk song about the famed abolitionist. It only took the jury one hour to decide his fate. On January 26, 1882, the jury foreman announced that Charles Guiteau was guilty as charged. The court erupted in applause and cheers. When they finally quieted, Charles announced that God would avenge him for the outrage that had just occurred. For the next six months, 40-year-old Charles still firmly believed that he was going to escape the hangman's noose, whether through his appeals or a direct pardon from President Arthur. But on May 22, 1882, Charles's final appeal was denied. In a letter to Arthur, Charles proclaimed that he was responsible for Arthur's presidency and that the least he could do was free him. On June 24th, Arthur, after careful consideration, decided not to pardon Charles Gateau. On June 30th, 1882, Charles accepted that no help was coming to him. Resolved, he wrote a poem as his final words. As Charles made his way to the gallows, he saw that a crowd of over 1,000 had gathered. When the people quieted, 
Charles read 14 verses from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, which names Jesus' 12 apostles and their holy missions. Then, in a childlike falsetto voice, he sang his poem. I'm going to the Lordy, I'm so glad. I'm going to the Lordy, I'm so glad. I'm going to the Lordy, glory hallelujah, glory hallelujah. I'm going to the Lordy, I'm so glad. When he finished, the executioner placed the black hood over his head, bound his legs, and wrapped the noose around his neck. Charles let the poem fall from his hands. By the time it hit the ground, the trap door had opened. To thunderous cheers and applause, 40-year-old Charles Gateau dangled from the gallows pole. The man who shot President James Garfield was finally dead. Coming up, we'll explore James Garfield's legacy and consider what may have happened if he'd lived. Now, back to the story. After suffering for 80 days, 49-year-old President James Garfield finally passed away on September 19, 1881. The doctors, in their search for the bullet lodged inside of him, inadvertently infected his body with deadly germs and bacteria. On June 30, 1882, 40-year-old Charles Guiteau was executed for the assassination. To the end, Charles believed that it was his divine mission to kill the president. The case of James Garfield and Charles Guiteau wasn't an anomaly. In fact, 100 years later, a similar incident occurred in Washington, D.C., but the outcomes were drastically different. On March 30, 1981, 70-year-old President Ronald Reagan met with representatives of the AFL-CIO at the Washington Hilton, a mile and a half away from the White House. As he stepped out of the hotel, a light rain drizzled. He made his way towards his motorcade surrounded by Secret Service agents. Then, seemingly out of nowhere, shots rang out. 25-year-old John Hinckley Jr., standing mere feet behind Reagan, aimed his 22 caliber revolver and fired six times at the president. Luckily, he wasn't a very good shot. Instead, the first bullet struck press secretary James Brady, leaving him partially paralyzed for the rest of his life. Secret Service agent Timothy McCarthy and DC police officer Thomas Delahanty were also hit. The sixth bullet hit an armored car, ricocheted off, and landed in the president's left lung, less than an inch away from his heart. Reagan was rushed to George Washington University Hospital for surgery, and the bullet was successfully removed. Thanks to antibiotics, Reagan was able to halt the fever that overcame him during his recovery. Within a month, he was back to work at the Oval Office. Meanwhile, details of John Hinckley Jr.'s motivation were quickly made public. He had formed a deep obsession with actress Jodie Foster after watching her in the film Taxi Driver, a movie about an obsessive cabbie who attempts to assassinate a presidential candidate. Hinckley believed that if he killed the president in real life, 
he would finally get the attention he deserved from Foster. The assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan echoed the murder of James Garfield. What saved Reagan's life was the proper and immediate medical attention he received, something Garfield unfortunately didn't get. Many doctors in 1881 and later historians argued that if Garfield had received proper medical care, his death could have been prevented. The key to all of this was the lack of properly sanitized hands and medical instruments. In the 1860s, British surgeon Joseph Lister revolutionized medical procedures with the theory of cleanliness and sterilization. Inspired by Louis Pasteur's work in microbiology, Lister believed that microorganisms could get into wounds and cause infection. He believed that antisepsis practices were the solution to preventing deaths after surgery. But he was met with skepticism and laughter. The medical world was still dubious about the concept of germs and bacteria. It wasn't until 1876 that European doctors finally caved and sterilized themselves and their equipment before treating patients. In the United States, however, antisepsis and sterilization were simply ignored. No one disregarded this more than the doctors who tended to James Garfield. Beginning with Dr. Townsend and continuing with Bliss, the doctors continuously used unsanitized hands and objects to dig through Garfield's body. The doctors, who all but killed the president, never faced any serious consequences for their inadequate care, except for public shame from other physicians. Dr. Bliss, in a truly astonishing move, actually sent Congress a bill of $25,000, $627,801 today for his time tending to the president. Congress offered him a quarter of that. Insulted, Bliss refused to accept the money. He died seven years later in poverty. Garfield never stood a chance of survival while under Bliss's care. Because of this, it was only a matter of time before Chester A. Arthur was sworn in as the next president of the United States of America. When Arthur ascended to the Oval Office, many believed he would continue his stalwart Republican ways and the controversial spoil system. To everyone's surprise, he didn't. In January of 1883, Arthur signed into law the Pendleton Civil Service Act, Overwhelmingly passed by Congress, the bill put an end to political patronage as a means to fill government positions. Instead, merit became the basis for such jobs. The act also made it illegal for any government employee to be fired or demoted because of their political affiliation. Chester Arthur, a man who championed the spoil system throughout the entirety of his political career, surprisingly helped bring about its end, an end that had political consequences for himself. The move isolated him among the remaining stalwart Republicans who were on their way out of power. Even the moderates found themselves still nervous about Arthur's old radical ways potentially coming through. Illness prevented Arthur from seeking re-election, and in 1884, Grover Cleveland was elected president. 
Cleveland would become the only president to serve two non-consecutive terms and the only one not lumped into the group of leaders known as the forgettable presidents. Sadly, James Garfield finds himself in this group, not because of his policies, but because his time in office was far too short. He served for only four months before Charles Gateau shot him. And in the 80 days leading up to his death, Garfield held only one cabinet meeting. Garfield's legacy lies more in what could have been. He was a well-respected Civil War general and highly regarded statesman while in Congress. Though problematic in his views on race, James did believe that it was important for newly freed Black Americans to obtain an education and have the right to vote. When Garfield was elected to office, there was a promise that he was a man who could end corruption in Washington and set things right. He'd bring America back together. In death, Garfield did just that. Northerners, Southerners, Blacks, and Whites all mourned James Garfield's death. It was the first time since that bloody war 15 years earlier that the entire country was brought together. Perhaps that is Garfield's greatest legacy. A still deeply fractured country, even after surviving a costly civil war, was able to come together for the first time because of a death. One wonders, what would the rest of James's political career have looked like had he survived? It is safe to assume that Garfield would have continued the fight to end the spoils system and political patronage that reigned in both the Republican Party and Washington, D.C. for so long. It is doubtful that it would have been as easy for him as it was for Chester Arthur since Garfield's death accelerated the cause. But he was dedicated to ending as much corruption as he possibly could. Despite his opinions on race, which sadly may not have changed had he lived, James probably would have continued to fight for civil rights. This extends to education. As a person who spent his earlier career in academia at Hiram College, Garfield knew the importance of learning to read and write. In his inaugural address, he feared that without proper schooling, black citizens risked becoming America's permanent peasantry. For the North and the South to be united and end the suffering from the Civil War, it needed to be the federal and state's obligation to end illiteracy. It wouldn't have been easy, but it is very likely that Garfield would have fought for a more substantive public education as part of his administration's goals. His vision of ending illiteracy sadly never came to fruition. In 2016, the Washington Post reported that 32 million American adults could not read. 50% of all Americans were unable to read above an eighth grade level. The lack of proper education, studies show, leads to an increase in individual poverty, an increase in crime, and long-term effects on the economy. Garfield's dream was lofty, and even if he was able to get policy passed, another president who disagreed with him would most certainly have undone his work. But it's possible that he could have enacted drastic education reforms. As long as Garfield was able to avoid serious scandal, we could assume that he would have been elected for a second term. 
This could easily have affected some of his foreign policy positions in the grand scheme of things. He and Secretary of State James Blaine believed that an increase in trade with Latin America was necessary. Garfield even instructed Blaine to organize a summit with various Latin American countries to help settle disputes and negotiate trade deals. Unfortunately, Chester Arthur canceled the conference when he became president. Had Garfield not been assassinated, the Pan-American Conference would have occurred in 1882, and perhaps trade with Latin America may have begun much earlier. Garfield was chosen as the Republican nominee as a compromise for the infighting between the stalwarts and the half-breeds. When he was killed, the stalwarts all but faded. If Garfield had not been assassinated, it's possible that he would have united the party. The process had already begun with his cabinet picks, but perhaps by the time he left office, the division would have been mended. Which leads to the possibility that Chester Arthur would never have been president at all. At the time of Garfield's death, he and Arthur had barely spoken to one another for weeks. The only reason Arthur softened his views was because of Garfield's death. It's possible that otherwise, Arthur would have continued his hardline radical ways. The rift could have been so bad that he may have even left the vice presidency come the next election in 1884. And what would have happened to Charles Guiteau had he not pulled the trigger that July day at the Baltimore and Potomac Railroad Station? Charles was a deeply troubled person all through his life. After his execution, an autopsy showed possible signs of a syphilitic infection. In the late stages of the disease, the brain can become severely affected. However, the syphilis theory was discounted in 2006 by George Paulson, former chair of neurology at Ohio State University. Paulson argued that syphilis would have affected Charles's cognitive skills within four or five years. Because Charles had already been mentally ill for many years prior, he probably suffered from schizophrenia and grandiose narcissism. Given all this, we can assume that Charles would have continued a life of schemes and scams as a way to make money. He had a history of latching on to an idea like religion or politics and becoming overly obsessed with it until it no longer suited him. Had he not shot Garfield, it is possible Charles would have become bored with politics, as he had with evangelism, and found something new to obsess over. Since his assassination, James Garfield has fallen into relative obscurity. But at the time of his election, he carried with him a great deal of respect and potential. Born into poverty, Garfield exemplified the American ideal of pulling oneself up by their bootstraps. He dedicated his life to helping others, whether it was through his time in academia or in public office. Had Charles Gateau's bullet not found its mark, James Garfield would have continued that fight for others for the rest of his days. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back on Monday with a new episode. 
You can find more episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Assassinations, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Assassinations on Spotify, just open the app and type Assassinations in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Assassinations was written by Joe Guerra and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. Thomas.